Come on, it's summertime. If you don't like that, you have been in Michigan too long. So, uh, welcome to the Tabernacle. Uh, we're glad that you're here. You picked a good weekend because we're kicking off um, our summer series, and it feels like it's finally summer. Um, and uh, so, we thought that a little intro video to the book that we're going to be studying would be helpful. So we are going through the book of Titus, and this message today, by way of an introduction, will kind of explain where we're going and also why we've chosen uh, the kind of the summertime postcard reggae vibes, beyond the obvious. Everyone needs a little reggae. But uh, Titus was a book of the Bible. It's a short little book, almost like a postcard, um, relative to larger books like Romans or the Corinthians or Hebrews, for crying out loud. It's a shorter little book of the Bible, but it packs a really big punch. In fact, uh, the great reformer Martin Luther uh, said about Titus, he said, all that is necessary for Christian knowledge and life is contained in this letter. Now, Titus was written uh, in the 60s, uh, that's AD 60s, somewhere right around there, uh, we think, and it was from Paul to this guy named Titus, a man that he had led to Christ, a man that he had discipled and trained, and what we learn from the book is Titus was left at this place where Paul had met him, namely the island of Crete. So all those images, our, 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 our man David Hoflinger, who's based in Manistee, uh, our worship leader there who does uh, these awesome movies for us, he said all of the images in that intro video actually came from the Mediterranean island of Crete, underwater, above water, on the beach, which is where I want to be, let's be honest, right? All of that came from Crete. It's a, it's a Greek island, the most populous of all the islands, uh, or, or sorry, of all the Greek islands, that is. Uh, and it was an interesting place. Uh, the gospel had come to Crete. Paul had brought it, and, you know, Titus was one of those that were led to Christ and were discipled to lead there. But it was an interesting place because this is what is said about Crete. It actually says it in uh, verse 12 of chapter 1. It says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said about them, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So this is the culture. This, this is a culture that is used to immoral excess, if you will. It reminds me very much of the United States of America. But God and his providence, the gospel has come there and lives have been changed. But I don't know if you've experienced this. You know, the gospel can come in someone's life, but it doesn't mean that there's a, you know, magical snap of the fingers and everything's perfect in their lives. And so with any church, with that kind of culture all around it, that culture can begin to influence it. And so it actually says later in verse 16 that some of these influences were making their way into church, that there were people in the church that professed to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, they're unfit for any good work. And so Paul writes this letter to the churches in Crete, but specifically to the leader of all these churches. He'll say it in verse 5, to put in order the things that aren't in order. And he'll say in chapter 2, so he can preach sound doctrine. Because the best way to reinforce or to strengthen a church and to be 
not only the church is supposed to be, but the people that we're supposed to be is through the preaching of God's word. Now, I don't know if you believe that, but I believe that. I believe that's why God gave us the church, not just the church, you know, 2,000 years ago on Crete, but the church here in northern Michigan. Is through the preaching and the teaching of God's word. That's how we are strengthened. That's how our lives continue to be sanctified and changed. Uh, uh, and this is what we're doing. So don't look at me like that. This is, this is what we're doing. Okay? So um, if you have a Bible, if you would turn to Titus, it's in the right part of the book. If you have a flat screen, you can probably dial it up even quicker. And I wanted to say one more word about why we're encouraging people Uh, to find their Bibles and bring their Bibles. We're really not trying to be snarky. It's we're trying to, as a people, become known as people of the book. People of the book. And we don't want you to just take my word for it. We want to help people find their way around the Bible. It's not that much extra uh, uh, to, to bring it along. But here's another reason if you're looking for why it's a good idea to have a Bible at church. I don't want anybody to feel bad if you forgot yours, if you're just simply not going to do it. But I want to give you another reason why it's a good idea. If the preacher gets boring, you've got something else to do. <laughs> and and I've, I've seen me do it. I've, I've seen me be boring, and I've seen me be the guy with the Bible that's like, I'm going to find a juicy part of the Old Testament because this guy's droning on and on and on or whatever. But, uh, uh, and, and it's way better than, you know, checking your socials or whatever. So we're going to look at Titus, and we're only looking uh, in this intro message, we're only going to look at the introduction of Titus, just the first four verses, the postmark, if you will, who it's from, who it's to, and what it's for. But I'm going to trust that God has something for us in his word. So here we go. Titus uh, chapter 1, we'll just look at verses 1 through 4. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is God's word. And as I said, this is just the introduction. But the unique thing about God's word is that there's no wasted words. They're all inspired by God. Men were inspired, and as they're carried along by the Spirit, they wrote down the, where, the very words of God for us. And so a lot can be packed in just a few phrases or a few sentences. And especially when Paul's writing, because he's the king of the run-on sentence, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that. And he'll throw in a lot of little descriptors, grace and peace and joy, and, and you're like, I'm just running out of you know, brain space to take all these words. So we thought it'd be a good idea to go slow and go... Uh, uh, just a few verses at a time and see what God might have to not only teach us but to encourage us and challenge us. And right in the very first phrase, this is the first thing that jumped out to me, is he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle 
of Jesus Christ, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I know you've heard the word apostle before, but just by way of uh, reminder or just, you know, for those that maybe don't know what an apostle is, I thought we'd just give a little descriptor. Apostle, capital A, was kind of a big deal. Apostle, capital A, was kind of a big deal. What I mean by that is an apostle or a sent one, as it's called, is someone who had witnessed the ministry of Jesus firsthand and had seen the risen Jesus firsthand. So that was a limited number of people. There are no more apostle capital A's walking the earth. They all died uh, about 2,000 years ago. But Paul was one of them. You'll remember that Paul, before his name was changed from Saul to Paul, met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So he was a witness of the ministry of Jesus firsthand, namely to him, and he saw and heard and experienced the risen Christ. And so being an apostle, capital A, was a big deal because these were people that had seen Jesus and could be a witness to what he did on a first hand basis. They weren't receiving it as it were, kind of like the way we play telephone. Does that make sense? And so if you were an apostle, you were a sent one that was just one degree away from the man himself. And so he says here, uh, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, just by way of clarification, I believe we still have people with the gift of being an apostle. It says in uh, uh, Corinthians, that's one of the spiritual gifts. And this is a person like the apostles, capital A, that will go to a place, plan a church, start a movement, sometimes to, uh, you know, like an unreached people group or a language, a tribe that hasn't heard the gospel before. We still have a people that do that sort of ministry, but they're not apostle capital A. And here Paul, he's an apostle, even though it's not capitalized there, I'm calling him capital A. He's a big deal. But did you notice the arrangement of the titles? He doesn't lead with apostle, capital A. Maybe that's why I wasn't called to be one of them because I would have said, hey, look, I've met the risen Lord. I'm kind of a big deal. That's not humble Paul. Paul starts with a different descriptor. Paul, a servant of God. Oh, and by the way, yeah, I'm an apostle. There's significance in that. He starts with servant. Church, the highest calling on any life is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And that's the calling of every single one of us. Every single one of us is called to be a servant of Jesus Christ, the most high God, the king of kings. And what does a servant do? A servant sets aside his or her rights. A servant sets aside his or her agenda. A servant bends his or her will entirely to conform to the will of the one he or she serves. And so the highest calling on any life is simply to be a servant of Jesus Christ. You know, we climb and, and push and press for all kinds of titles. You know, you can, you can be the dog catcher. You can be the mayor. You can be the governor. You can be a congressman or congresswoman or a senator 
or a president or maybe vice, but you know, we look for these titles, but a servant of Jesus Christ, that's a higher calling than the stars on a military man or military woman's jacket. Do you believe that? Have you ever thought about the fact that we're called to serve that way? No matter what our job is, the highest calling is to be a servant. Well, I'm just a homemaker. Are you joking? Your high calling is to be a servant of Jesus Christ first. And we serve him with every breath and every moment and all of our talents and all of the things, resources that we have to offer. And so Paul leads with the very first thing out of his mouth is just so you know, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And so are we. We're called to be. This is consistent with what Jesus taught. If, if you uh, flip over to Matthew, the book of Matthew chapter 20, this is a familiar teaching of Jesus to, for many of us. Jesus, his disciples were kind of feeling like a big deal because they, you know, they were the ones that he chose. They were the ones that were walking around this lake with him for three years. They were the ones that eventually he would send out to be apostles. I don't think they knew at the time they were also the ones that would be martyred for the faith. But early on in their sanctification, two of them, James and John, they got their mom to come to Jesus and ask them for a special place of honor in his kingdom. And he said, you don't even know what you're asking. And it was then that he turned to all of them and said this. In verse 26, he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, if anyone deserved to be served, it was the king of kings, Jesus Christ, God in flesh. Do you agree? But he didn't come that way. The scripture says he wasn't anything special to look at. His birth wasn't noted except for some shepherds and some others that were watching the stars. He wasn't a big deal. He came as a servant, a servant king. Later in his ministry, he would say to his disciples who he had served for three years, he said, no servant is above his master. And he washed their feet. The king of kings washed their dirty, stinking feet. And then he said that we should do the same. We're no greater than our God and Savior Jesus, the servant. He came to serve us, and if we worship him, we're here to serve him. If you want to be great, you've got to learn how to serve. And the highest calling is to be known and to live and to act as a servant of Jesus Christ. This past spring, we were uh, down in Charlotte um, at the Billy Graham Library. And one of the cool things was uh, uh, that there were, uh, there were people there that actually knew him. And so they knew the stories that you don't read on Wikipedia. <laughs> and uh, if, if you don't know who Billy Graham uh, was, uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord. He's probably the greatest evangelist of the 21st century, or 20th and 21st century. Preached to more people, I think, than any known human being. 
countries, nations, it didn't matter. These massive, massive crusades. Uh, but it was a hard life being an evangelist. And apparently sometime, I think it was in the late 60s or early 70s, um, one of the political parties uh, came to Billy Graham and suggested that since he was now known as America's pastor and since no one trusted anyone in Washington, D.C., that the best thing for this country would be for him to run for office, specifically to run for president of the United States. And they were serious about it. They were serious about it. Now, I don't know how serious he considered it, but I do know that word quickly uh, was passed to his wife, Ruth Bell Graham. And her response to her husband was this, Billy, you serve as an evangelist for the most high God. Why would you ever lower yourself to be president? Why would you ever lower yourself? Now, we can hear that and think that that's a backhanded comment towards politicians. I don't think so. I think she'd have said the same thing if he was called to be dog catcher. We're called. We all have a unique calling. But the highest calling, and it's for all of us, and all of us can answer that call, is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul goes on after he says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now that can, you know, you can get lost in what those words mean. I'm gonna try to help navigate, but let me read it again. He says, for the sake of the faith, he's saying, this is why I'm writing this letter. It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, who are the elect? The elect is anyone who's called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and has received him into their life by grace through faith. And, you know, if you read scripture, there's a lot of different names that we have for Christians. Uh, One is the elect. One is saints. One are the children of God, believers. This is just one of the names. And this is specifically when it says the elect, it's referring to the fact that God knew from eternity past who would receive him and who would not. And you can get yourself all bent out of shape about predestination and free will or, and you're just come to me and I just tell you, yeah, it's both. We have a free will and we're predestined. Uh, sleep well, okay? So, uh, uh, so, so he says, this is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. We have faith, knowledge, which plays out in godliness in how you live. And this is important because genuine faith involves the heart, the mind, and the will. Genuine faith involves the heart, the mind, and the will. I don't think you can just have one of those without the other two or just two of those without all three. Genuine faith, someone who's truly saved, who has truly met Jesus Christ, has been saved by God's grace through faith. You'll see it's an engagement of the heart, the mind, and the will. This is what uh, James is on about, the book of James, when it talks about faith and works. You know, some people will say, well, I just have faith. And James says, well, if faith doesn't play out in works, is it real faith? And it's the same thing that we're referring to right here, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, but he also plays an importance on the emphasis of knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, why do we need all three? You see, faith is an active trust in what you know is true. 
So, uh, and I've used this analogy before, when you came here into T2 or when you came into T77 in Manistee, if, if you're sitting in the service, you, you put faith that that chair would hold you. Maybe it's because you've sat in it before. Maybe you looked it over. Maybe you didn't. Most of us just plop our keisters right down in the chair, right? It's an active trust that the chair is not going to break and you'll be embarrassed laying on the floor. With your mind, you said that looks like a chair, acts like a chair, seems like a chair, solid enough, and you gave that chair your heart, your mind, and your backside, right? Some people don't treat faith in God that way. They say, well, I gave him my heart years and years ago, but I haven't learned a thing about him and my life's not really different. Is it really faith? Or there are some people that are, oh, I gave him my heart and I know a lot about it, but I'm still horrible to my wife. I'm horrible to my kids. I'm not an example at work. It hasn't played out in my life. My will hasn't got involved. I might have a lot of knowledge. I might think I gave him my heart, but my actions don't follow. But if... If faith is an active trust in what we know is true, then faith and knowledge are important because my will, my actions, follow what I know to be true. So we have to have all three, and that's what a genuine faith is. And that's why Paul wrote this letter to the church on Crete, why God has preserved this letter for us and why Martin Luther can say that everything that's necessary uh, for the Christian life is contained in this book. Genuine faith involves the heart, the mind, and the will. If you were here a couple weeks ago, I was banging away about salvation and sanctification. It's the same deal. And you say, well, why did I come back if we're just going to repeat things? Because you never graduate from church. Now, some people would like to think they graduate from church, but they're wrong. Even if I cease to be a pastor, I get fired. You know what? I'd like to think that I could still come to church here or go to church somewhere because I need it. You never graduate from church. You know, I used to be a school teacher. Thank God we graduate from school, right? I mean, I I taught history. I taught government. I taught econ and, you know, trusted that other teachers were, you know, teaching them weird stuff like math and all those other subjects, but I was just, you know, doing the humanities stuff, and then you watch these students graduate. You've got the basic knowledge, now you're ready for the world, which we know they're not, but that's a different sermon, right? Well, why doesn't the same thing happen with church? I'll tell you when you graduate from church, when you die. That's when you graduate from church. In, 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 in fact, you know, we should start doing that with the casket. Oh, you may now turn your tassel, just flip it over. <laughs> Because then you see him and you are changed and you'll see him and be like him is what the Bible says. But until then, we need to be taught. We need to be challenged. We need to be encouraged. You don't graduate from church. I don't graduate from church. I'm constantly taught and challenged and encouraged, sometimes discouraged. But genuine faith involves my heart, but it also involves my mind. And that's one of the reasons we're saying, hey, let's be people of the word. Let's find our Bibles Let's get into them because as we learn about God, our knowledge of the truth grows, our wills will follow that which accords with godliness. This is also why uh, progressive Christianity is so dangerous. Progressive Christianity, there's a whole movement in churches and sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not so obvious where there's a whole group of Christians 
or they call themselves Christians, that are giving in to the same temptation that Eve heard uh, first from uh, the serpent in the garden. The temptation that says, did God really say? Did God really say? Do we really need that part of the Bible? What does Paul know about gender? We know so much more now. What does Paul know about sexuality? What is the Bible? Well, you know, this was written 2,000 years ago. We're so much more educated and better off. And so Christians are bringing that thinking, the same worldly thinking that was coming in from the outside into the church on Crete is coming into the church in America with a whole bunch of people deconstructing it. And they think they're new and they're hip and they're cool, but it's the oldest temptation known to man. And the problem is, is if you deconstruct what is true, then it can't be genuine faith because your will won't follow anything. And what are you left with? Thomas Jefferson tried to do the same thing. One of the uh, founders of our nation, he, he was the main author of the Declaration of Independence, right? He was a deist. So he believed that there was a God, but he didn't believe this God was interested in actually intervening into human history. And so what Thomas Jefferson did is he took a Bible and he cut out all of the supernatural parts. He cut out all of the miracles, all the fire from heaven, all the parting of Red Seas, all the you know, lame people walking and blind people seeing, the resurrection. What are you left with, Tommy? A gospel that's in tatters. A gospel that's in tatters. Genuine faith involves the heart and the mind and the will. We need all three and we never graduate. And there's one more thing. He goes on to say that this gospel is the hope of eternal life and it was promised by God. And, you know, I love the fact that it says God who never lies, that he promised this before the ages begin. That's how he knows we're the elect. And at the proper time, because God, you know, everything happens in order and on time. He's the God who's never late. He manifested in his word through the preaching. That's how God decided it should happen. That the preaching of his word, it's not what's special in the preacher. It's that when God's word is being preached to God's gathering of God's people, really cool things happen. And it's because the Holy Spirit does that work. But then he says this. He says to Titus my true child in a common faith. Now, I'm not trying to parse words here, but you know, at, at first I just read over that. Okay, well, we know it's from Paul and it's to Titus. I mean, this is basically John like reading the outside of a, you know, a letter I'd get in the mail. It's from this person, it's to this person, what's the big deal? But if you read that again, and if there's not wasted words, look, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And so he's saying two things. At first, you can think, well, Paul's kind of flexing. He's like, oh, Paul is, you know, this, this guy, Titus, you know, I led him to the Lord. I trained him. I discipled him. I don't think that's what he's trying to do because remember in the very first verse, he called himself a servant first. All he's trying to do is put the relationship between him and Titus into context for us and for those people on Crete. Remember, these people, they're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They're already people that are going, did God really say? And so Paul, capital A, apostle, because he knows this letter is going to be written to all the churches, he wants them to know that he's giving instructions to someone he treats like a son, someone who owes his 
salvation to Paul's ministry, who's been trained by Paul, he's elevating Titus in their eyes. He's saying, Titus is like my son, my true child in the faith. But the second part, my true child, he says, in a common faith. So on the one hand, he's elevating Titus, but on the other hand, he's flattening the hierarchy. Do you see that or is that just in my mind? He's saying he's my true child in a common faith. He's not putting Paul here and Titus here. He's saying, no, both of us serve the same God. Both of us had to enter through the narrow gate. Both of us are walking the narrow way. Both of us are saved by the same Jesus. Both of us serve the same king. Both of us are a part of this kingdom expanding. To me, it's quite dramatic when he says, my true child in a common faith, because it feels like he's saying both of us, Paul and Titus, we are part of something far bigger than ourselves. We're part of something far bigger than ourselves. It's bigger than just Paul and Titus. It's bigger than Israel and Crete and Ephesus and Corinth. It's bigger than the Hebrews. It's bigger than the Gentiles. It's bigger than AD 60 when this letter was written. This is from eternity past to eternity future. This is bigger than the known world in the first hundred years since the birth and death of Christ. He's saying this is bigger than the tabernacle. This is bigger than Michigan. This is bigger than Baptists and Methodists and Nazarenes and Lutherans and free church people and Catholics. And I don't know who's saved and I don't know who's not saved. That's not my job. My job is to preach the gospel. But in that little, almost a throwaway phrase to Titus, my true child in a common faith, there's this subtle reminder that all of us are part of something bigger than ourselves. Church, the gospel is intensely personal for you, for me. But it's real easy to get tunnel vision and just think that it's, you know, these are the truths to help my life work out, my marriage, my kids, my family, my finances, my peace, my joy, my fulfillment. There's a whole lot of my's in there. But the gospel that Jesus preached, it's way bigger than you and it's way bigger than me. It's way bigger than us. This is eternal. This is a kingdom. You see, I find this incredibly encouraging because it's easy to get discouraged in February in Michigan. I mean, it's easy to stay encouraged in June when it actually might rain this weekend. You know, oh, rain, it's so hot. Wah. Remember February, right? And, and, and it's hard in the church sometimes to think, oh, is, are we ever going to plant the next campus? Oh, are the, those grumpy people ever going to leave? Oh, you know, I've never thought that. <laughs> yes, I have. Sorry. But it's, but it's encouraging to think sometimes that our labor, our toil, our struggle, it's not in vain because we're, we're part of something that's far bigger than just us. It's super encouraging. 
It's the only way that I could have made it here almost, it'll be 20 years this November, is to think that, you know what? I get to be part of something, just a part of something that God is doing, and it's way bigger than me. It's way bigger than us. And it's exciting what God is doing in our church, but we're just a fraction of what he's doing around this world. And you know what else is exciting to me? That the church isn't all white. Because vanilla all the time, I love you, but it's boring. It's boring, be honest. That's why we had to have a little reggae in our intro video to remind me that I used to live in Jamaica, you know? We're part of something bigger. You know, in fact, I was asking David. I was like, David, I like the postcard. I like the, because it's summertime, I like the ocean vibe. And I asked for the reggae, but why the Jamaican man? Okay, there's no Jamaicans that I'm aware of in Crete. Right? We kind of took an artistic leap there. You know what his response was? Uh, I think they're, re- you know, they're reading Titus in Jamaica. And I was like, boom, love it. That's not cultural appropriation at all. We'll stick with it. This gospel, this kingdom, we're part of something far bigger than ourselves. It's encouraging and it's also humbling. It reminds us to stay low. It reminds us, as Pink Floyd said, that we're just another brick in the wall. And it matters. Your service, your faith, your life. And we have spiritual fathers, but it's a common faith. At the end of the day, all of us are sinners saved by grace. The hierarchy is flattened. There's only one hero. There's only one star. And his name is Jesus Christ. You know, this... uh, Past week, I heard a story that just reminded me again of how we're part of something bigger than ourselves. You see, you know, the decision to plant a campus in Cadillac, we'd felt for a long time that God had called us to plant another campus. We just didn't know when and we didn't know where. And I can't tell you how high level these meetings were. I mean, really important people in really important meetings. Not even true, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't done flippant, but it didn't happen how I thought it would. But somehow we all kind of came to the same conclusion that we didn't know exactly where it was, but it was supposed to be east. And as we continued to look east, it made the most sense here. It seemed good to us and the spirit and the doors didn't close. And so we kept kind of pushing that way. And then, and then things started to accelerate. And, you know, you know, we hired this guy who's coming in hot, Isaac Riddle, right? You know, and, and, uh, and then we, you know, we hired another guy, Ron Lamarand, who's one of our own, you know, who's probably regretting he ever answered the phone call from Martin Rizzi, right? And, and, and so we're thinking that somehow we know how this is working. But I was reminded again that this is far bigger than us. There was a student um, just this past week that was attending Foundry, a Foundry event in Manistee. And I haven't met this student, but... Uh, because of his living situation, uh, during the school year, he lives in McBain. That's east of us. And so it, it isn't conducive for him to get to Foundry during the school year. But in the summer, he lives in Manistee. And so in the summer, uh, he gets to go to camp. He gets to be a part of Foundry. And the kid loves it. Well, he was at the beach event because Manistee has a beach, in case you didn't know where that is. And uh, he's talking to Pastor Britton, and, and, and Pastor Britton says, well, you know, um, 
We're planting a campus in Cadillac. Pretty soon you'll be able to go to Foundry during the school year. The kid got tears. You see, last summer, God did such a cool thing in his life at Camp 22. He started praying. He was praying that he could go to Foundry during the school year. And here I thought it was a result of our high-level meetings. I didn't know a teenager was praying. You guys, we're part of something far bigger than ourselves. And we're called to be servants. We're called to grow in our faith, in our knowledge, as our will is conformed to it. Please find your Bible. Please find your Bible. We're going to trust that what God wants to do is bigger than we could ever ask or imagine, bigger than our church. We're not the only church. There's so many good churches. We're not a cult. My wife's watching another cult show. Goodness sakes, it gives me the heebie-jeebies, you know? It's a new special on, oh, I'm not even going to name it. And you probably know. That's not us. We're not the only church. We're not the only church, but we're called We're called to be servants, to grow in our knowledge together. I love our church. I love it. It's a church I always wanted to go to, and and I'm grateful for that. So would you bow your heads? I'm going to invite the bands to come out. And I wonder, as we just kicked off these first four verses of Titus, um, this book that was written for the faith of God's elect, for our knowledge of the truth, what might God be saying to you through his spirit? I believe he's speaking. He's always speaking. And he's faithful when his word is expounded on that his spirit will translate. Maybe it's something we haven't even talked about. But what is he saying to you? Maybe he's inviting you uh, to become a Christian. Maybe he's inviting you to become a true servant. Maybe he's inviting you to actually grow in your faith and to engage with your head and your heart and your hands and feet. Maybe you just need encouragement today. But what is God saying? If you don't know, ask him. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you'll speak directly to our hearts, that we would hear from your spirit. And just as importantly, that we would actually act upon it. That where there's sin, we'd repent. Where there's calling, we'd say yes. Where there's encouragement and love, we would receive it and be blessed by it. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life and your sacrifice that you gave it for me, for us. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you that your spirit is still working and living in us today. Would you help us to be people of the word who live according to it? Who live according to the word that accords with godliness? God, I ask all of these things in the name of your son about whom we sing. Amen.